Nicholas Bornois of CapitalLink, and I would like to welcome you to this new session. This session uh, is going to discuss alternative income generation strategies. We will talk about REITs, real estate interval funds, refers, and convertibles. So I would like to thank uh, Svetlana, Barry, and Colin for being with us, and of course, John Duggan from Morgan Stanley, who is going to moderate uh, the panel. We have a great group of panelists, great moderator, and a very interesting topic, especially in today's investment environment. And with that, I will turn it over to John. Nicholas, and thank you all for taking part in our panel today and viewing. Uh, as Nicholas mentioned, it is the Alternative Income Generation Strategies panel. Uh, and the members of that panel are Svetlana Gubri, Head of Global REIT Funds at Aberdeen Standard Investments, Barry Nelson, Senior Advisor at Advent Capital Management, and Colin Bell, Global Head of Client Portfolio Management for Fundamental Equity at Goldman Sachs Equity Management. Goldman Sachs Asset. I think one thing we can agree on this year is there's been a lot of conversation, almost dominant among all sorts of investors about growth versus value. But surprisingly, a little bit left out of that conversation, I believe, has been income, uh, dividend income, I should say. And depending Many of them are lagging tremendously the broader markets and in some cases down on the year. Uh, in a world where we've had a tremendous rebound coupled with a renewed search for yield, this I think is truly surprising. And our panelists are gonna shed some light on what we may be missing from the equation in terms of dividend income sectors like real estate and REITs. Uh, we're also going to look at hybrid spaces like convertibles and have some discussion on what the opportunities are for the balance of 2020 and into 2021 on that sector. And with that, I'd like to turn it over right away to Svetlana for some comments. Thank you, John. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Svetlana Gubri, and I'm heading global REIT funds at Aberdeen Standard Investments. I'm based in Edinburgh, so it's actually quite uh, getting late, um, actually not uh, four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, Aberdeen Standard Investments uh, is the second largest uh, real estate asset manager in Europe. And uh, with global presence, we have offices in 17 um, cities around the world. And we manage around uh, 50 billion um, AUM um, in, in real estate uh, across uh, direct real estate, uh, listed real estate, real estate multi-manager, and real estate debt. Our team manages a number of listed uh, real estate uh, funds, uh, global funds, regional funds, European, uh, US, uh, ex-US, and one of the funds that we manage is a closed-end fund uh, listed in New York Stock, on the New York, New York Stock Exchange, Aberdeen Global Premier Properties. This fund invests in uh, listed uh, real estate companies, REITs around the world, um, we are a truly global fund. Um, the fund is benchmarked against uh, FTSE Airplane uh, Global Index. So at least theoretically, we have an ability to invest in um, some of the emerging markets. And historically, uh, we've been quite active in those markets. But in today's uh, world, looking at uh, risk-reward opportunities, we do see um, a lot of opportunities on the income side. 
Um, so typically uh, for our investors, uh, we are um, targeting uh, higher income uh, profile companies, but we also use a barbell approach. So we uh, mirror that with uh, more growth uh, focused names. So if you look at our portfolio today, we um, take very active approach to the management. Um, we underweight uh, the sectors and we've been underweight the sectors that face a lot of structural challenges, uh, for example, retail. Um, and geographically, we uh, underweight um, markets where we have uh, concerns about longer term uh, real estate fundamentals. Um, uh, Hong Kong is being one of them. On the flip side, um, the fund has overweight positions in um, infrastructure real estate names, names that we believe will continue to grow um, uh, in the future beyond uh, pandemic. Uh, sectors that are new to the markets, uh, for example, um, newer sectors uh, such as uh, self-storage or student accommodation in Europe. Uh, in the U.S. it's a very, very well-established sector, but in Europe it's still up and coming. Uh, we also uh, pay a lot of attention to the new uh, and off-benchmark uh, opportunities in Asia-Pacific uh, that allows us, again, to balance uh, income and uh, growth uh, in the fund. Um, we cannot uh, not mention um, the current uh, global uh, pandemic and the impact uh, uh, on real estate, and I'm sure we will talk about this uh, a lot today. But uh, the way we look at that, uh, everything that we expected to happen in real estate uh, for the next five years effectively started to happen in the last three months. Uh, so uh, th this situation accelerated uh, structural changes that we were expecting. And going forward, um, there will be some opportunities. But at the same time, um, it will be interesting to see how the new interest rate environment and how uh, search for yield and income will change um, the dynamic in a real estate market in particular. And I'm happy to answer uh, questions later on. Um, did you want to uh, address a little more in depth some of the specific sectors, including potentially those within AWP and, and what your first stance is in particular on retail currently? Um, retail is uh, a, a challenge sector. And uh, um, as you can see from all the negative headlines over the last six months, um, our fund uh, has been underweight retail for quite some time. Um, so technically, we actually haven't done um, any changes to our retail allocations since March uh, because we were already underweight. Uh, right now, there is an interesting debate. Uh, what kind of retail will survive? What kind of retail will be robust? And um, when is going to be the uh, time to buy? retail, uh, because the, uh, our expectation is that investors and valuations will overshoot uh, and there will be some value opportunities, but we're not there yet and not all retail will be there. Uh, and I'm sure Colin will um, can expand on this uh, topic as well. But uh, basically what we 
uh, always, we always knew that with retail, you, you need to be very careful. You need to be um, always thinking about um, matching the right retail offering and the catchment area, the right tenant mix and uh, ability of that tenant mix to pay rent. Because for us, it's uh, at the end of the day, this is the dividend that uh, those companies, those landlords uh, will be able to uh, pay out to the shareholders, uh, to us. Great. Also, Svetlana, realizing that some of your portfolios are quite global, uh, often with a base of close to 50% United States, uh, with the remaining allocation spread around countries, uh, often including Germany, Japan, to some extent, China. Can you give us uh, your view uh, in a quick manner uh, on some of those larger countries that tend to, uh, to be included with your portfolios along with the U.S.? Absolutely. Um, one of the interesting um, uh, trends that we're seeing in the market, um, even though real estate is a local investment market, but the trends are becoming more and more global. So for, uh, going back to retail, what we started seeing uh, in the U.S. in the retail space uh, uh, three years ago, four years ago, um, it was the first sign of weakness in that sector. Um, even 12 months ago, when you talk uh, to uh, some of the Australian investors and Australian companies, uh, there was a view that Australia is different and retail environment in Australia will be different. But guess what? 12 months fast forward, they are exactly in the same situation even uh, pre-COVID. Um, similar uh, story with residential market, uh, with uh, apartments, rental apartment market. Even though uh, different countries have different regulations um, and uh, rent controls and uh, uh, building regulations, you still see similar trends in terms of the defensiveness of that sector. And especially this year, uh, investors became very acute to the uh, point that uh, residential is a defensive sector. And as a result, um, German residential names, uh, Finnish residential names performed extremely well. And um, that allows us to get, uh, to get exposure to that defensive element. Another um, interesting market uh, in terms of residential, uh, rental residential is Japan. Historically, uh, Japan didn't have a very attractive uh, growth in the residential sector. However, demographic changes and uh, economic changes led to um, unprecedented growth in that market. And even today, despite uh, economic slowdown uh, due to COVID, uh, we're still seeing attractive rental growth and uh, limited supply. And we as an investor can invest in that market by buying um, Japanese REITs uh, focusing on uh, residential market. So when we think about uh, our global exposure, um, there are a lot of common themes. So we will be uh, overweight in defensive residential um, overseas, not in the U.S. Um, we, we are uh, overweight industrial names across the board. Um, every single region has very strong um, demand uh, for industrial and it's not only e-commerce, uh, it's also uh, supply chain reconfiguration and the switch from um, uh, just-in-time supply to just-in-case 
supply, uh, which leads to uh, very large volumes of demand for high quality uh, industrial space. So for us, this is the opportunity for growth and this is the opportunity for income. Um, that's why from the, in our investor standpoint, this is a very uh, attractive uh, proposition um, to mix and match income and growth in today's environment. Thank you very much, Svetlana. I'm now going to turn it over to Colin, who will also be addressing real estate and potentially the income theme in general. Great. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining. Um, just by way of additional uh, you know, background, I, I sit within Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We manage about uh, $1.7 of, of assets across equities, fixed income, and alternatives. Um, we've, we've really sought to augment our, our retail footprint, I'd say, over the past decade. And as part of that, I've been very committed to uh, expanding what I'll call our, our alternative access vehicle platform. So we entered the closed-end fund space uh, in 2013. We launched our first BDC in 2015. And then uh, most recently this year, um, uh, entered the real estate interval fund space. So that's, that's the fund that I'm a, I'm a PM uh, on and, and uh, you know, we'll speak most specifically to, but the objectives of, of, of this fund, our, our Goldman Sachs Real Estate Diversified Income Fund is to deliver um, an attractive yield, which is currently about 6.3% using the, the last distribution and annualizing it and to, to deliver uh, low vol and, and low correlation uh, on top of that. And we do it by investing in all forms of real estate, um, not just uh, equity, but also debt, and not just listed real estate, but also private. Uh, and, and part of the reason we really like the interval fund structure is it allows us precisely to do that. We're big believers in uh, in this structure, it's it's very akin to a you know an open-ended 40-act fund in the sense that it's daily priced and uh, you can make daily purchases. The one nuance is um, we have the ability to restrict redemptions to a predefined interval in the case of our fund quarterly, and that allows us uh, to provide a whole host of benefits to retail investors. One of which is to provide access to private uh, illiquid investments. In our case, private real estate. Um, and it doesn't come with all the headaches and challenges that come with a traditional private investment. Uh, you don't have high minimums. Uh, you don't have to be a qualified purchaser. There are no reporting headaches. Everything is through 1099, et cetera. So uh, we're really big believers in this structure um, and really uh, believe this structure makes a ton of sense in the world of, of real estate. And, and just uh, extending on Svetlana's comments that I think really well summarized, uh, you know, the backdrop in, in real estate, um, you know, I, I would say uh, overall, and, and John, just your opening comments, I think sum it up quite, quite well too, which is uh, it, it's quite a head scratcher in that if you take a step back and really look at the challenges in the markets today, it's one of just muted growth and it's one of, uh, you know, muted yield, right? We have, a, we have a growth problem and we have a yield problem. Um, and as a consequence of the growth scarcity problem, growth has massively outperformed, but, uh, but you certainly haven't seen income, at least on the equity side, outperform as you would expect in a sort of income scarcity backdrop that's been exacerbated by uh, all the stimulus that's been put into the market on top of dividend cuts that we've seen in the equity market. And, you know, I really think the only explanation for it is, um, a couple of things. I think it's a fear around dividend cuts. Uh, 
that indeed have been real, uh, that have exacerbated the, the yield scarcity problem. But uh, as we'll talk about, we think that's very much in the rear view mirror. Uh, I think the other reason is just the affiliation with the value side of the market that's clearly been uh, you know, out of favor. Uh, you know, the S&P 500 is down seven or up 7% year to date, um, but the value side of the market is actually down 11% versus the growth side of the market up 24%, uh, which is quite extraordinary. So this backdrop, um, I think, is, is a good backdrop to contextualize as we talk about real estate, because I think real estate is a very similar story in that, um, you know, it, it's been it's been painted with a very broad brush and uh, generally has been cast in a fairly negative light. And, you know, that's why in aggregate, when you look at uh, listed real estate equities, they're down about 15% uh, year to date. And, and um, you know, I, I think the, you know, while indeed in our opinion, they should be down, there's no doubt there've been some negative impacts from the pandemic, um, you know, in a world where, which is aggressively transitioned from the physical to the digital with real estate very much representing the physical, um, you know, that, that has had a negative consequence on demand and, and, um, and it's been particularly pronounced in hotels, retail and, and office. Um, but, but the, you know, the reality is the impact of this pandemic and the impact of real estate broadly uh, wildly varies by property type. Um, and I think Svetlana, you know, hit a lot, uh, hit on a lot of these points, but there's no doubt that we're, uh, we're in a backdrop of accelerated disruption, disruption that's becoming more pronounced, more accelerated, more, more pervasive than ever. Um, and real estate is, is no exception to that. And, and so, uh, you know, long-winded way of saying we think the best way, we think that there's a very compelling case for real estate in general, in the sense that you get a 3.8% yield in the U.S., just, and I'm talking equities here only, obviously on the credit side, much higher than that, perhaps your preferred credit, you're looking at 6-7% type of yields. Um, so you get good yield uh, with companies that have payout ratios at about 78%, which is actually much lower than what we've seen in the global financial crisis, so arguably um, you know, safer yields, you get, you still can get growth. Um, uh, you've got, um, you know, companies that have, again, that are generally better capitalized than they were versus the global financial crisis. And you're looking at valuations where they're screening cheap on, on every metric, you know, versus bonds, versus equities, versus the private market. Um, so we think the setup for real estate is quite good, but the, but the best way to, to capture this opportunity um, is really, in our opinion, you have to go active and you really, really have to, to, to cast a wide net to, to exploit the opportunity uh, that we now have. Um, you know, and really what we've been sharpening our pencil around is, you know, with respect to the, you know, the property types that really have been hit hard, um, you know, what, what, are the, what are the ones that arguably are, are secular losers versus where the demand driver arguably has only been temporarily impaired and will improve as, as we get a vaccine. So, you know, on the, you know, retail, uh, you know, obviously I think it's the best example of just a secular loser. Uh, we didn't like retail going into the pandemic. We like it even less post-pandemic. Um, I'm sure people are familiar with the trends and the bankruptcies happening. Uh, Notably in the U.S., Lord and Taylor, J.C. Penney, Neiman Marcus, J. Crew, Brooks Brothers, GNC, you name it. There's been a ton, and it's all on the back of just this acceleration of online spending and, and you know penetration uh, percentage of, of uh, online sales has really trended over the past decade at about 100 to 150 basis point increases. 
but you know, this year it's been accelerated to be about 450 basis points. Um, you know, online sales in general are about up 30% year to date. When you look at the big retails, um, you know, like, like Target and Walmart and companies like that, their online sales lows, their online sales are up 100, 200% year to date. Um, so that's, that's wreaking havoc on bricks and mortar retail. That's just translating to less demand for bricks and mortar retail. And we think that trend is, is only going to continue. Um, I would agree with Svetlana that there's still opportunity. You just need to stock pick your way there within the world of real estate. And, you know, clearly, um, you know, shopping centers that have tenants that, you know, cater to experiential or necessity-based shopping is going to do better than the malls and, and the apparel retailers that are that are hurting much much more so. Uh, but generally, we don't we don't like that sector. But um, you know that's a secular loser uh, that we're heavily underweight. Uh, we have very very little exposure in, in our fund uh, to to retail uh, sub three percent, which is quite quite small. Um, you know, conversely, I would say sectors like senior housing. Um, has been hit really hard year to date and you know uh, retails down about I want to say 45% senior housing is down probably about 35% um, and that's really been hit hard because if you think about senior housing the tenants for senior housing are the you know highest at, at risk part of the population that's really been in the eye of the storm of the pandemic that hasn't obviously uh, uh, translated to to strong demand for for new occupancy in that part of the market um, but as we look forward and as we look in the, into the post-vaccine world, we actually think the demand driver very much remains intact. In fact, will accelerate as we have aging demographics helping to fuel that. Um, so that's really what we're focusing on is, is the, the down and out sectors and really trying to determine again if it's a secular loser versus something that's been temporarily impaired. And then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, look, you know, real estate uh, ultimately houses the economy, the old economy and the new economy. And there's so many property types that really are not only uh, relatively unimpacted by the pandemic, but in fact are benefiting. So uh, towers and digital storage companies, these are, you know, think about proliferation of data trend that's happening on the back of the Zoom call and uh, all the, you know, online learning that our kids are having to do and uh, the, the media that we're streaming and the push towards 5G and the internet of things that, you know, all that stuff is creating a massive proliferation of data. And the real beneficiaries of that in the real estate context are those that transport it, that are the tower companies and those that store it, which are the digital, digital storage companies that in essence house the cloud. Um, those companies, in fact, have done quite well year to date. You know, data centers up 25%, towers up 13%. Um, industrial REITs, these guys are on the right side of the Amazon trade. They're, these are the guys building the logistics to get that box from the warehouse to the end consumer um, that are benefiting from all the carnage that's happening to bricks and mortar retail. And, and then it has this added tailwind of companies to increase increased desire to domesticate supply chains, um, you know, in a post-COVID world. Uh, so that sector is doing quite well. Life science office space really benefiting from innovation trends. The tenants here are the biotech companies um, that um, that clearly uh, where innovation has only accelerated post-pandemic. Um, you know, so so there are a lot of places in the market that we have, in fact, uh, are, are more constructive on fundamentals post-pandemic than pre-pandemic. And then there are certain sectors that kind of sit in the middle that we think will do 
just fine, particularly in the world of housing that's quite expansive. And in, in the listed market, there's so much interesting stuff that we can invest in. Um, it, you know, it's not just debate around for sale versus for rent, but within the for rent market, we can invest in multifamily properties, we can invest in single family rental properties, we can invest in manufactured housing, um, and all those have different demand drivers and have been differently impacted by the pandemic, but um, manufactured housing, um, single family rental actually have, have benefited from the, the pandemic's backdrop, single family housing uh, due to the transition from the city to the suburbs, manufactured housing due to the um, either the desire or being forced into, into lower cost forms of housing. Um, you know, and within the multifamily space, uh, and this is consistent with the office space too, um, you know, not only are we having a trend of sort of uh, pushing from the, the city to, to the suburbs, and in the case of office, the trend around telecommuting, that's, that's arguably a secular headwind for, for office. Uh, but really, the, the, we still think there are ways to win here, uh, and the ways to win are, are to, to focus in, you know, states that uh, have lower taxes and are generally in warmer climates where these companies are relocating and, and consequently these people are relocating. So there's ways to win still in office and also uh, as a corollary to that in, in multifamily that we're really excited about. Um, and then just the last comment I'll make, I know, I know we're running up against time, is just, um, just a, a comment on listed versus private. Um, you know, there's it's a quite a hot topic in our industry around, you know, the listed guys will say private is too expensive and too opaque. The, the listed guy or the, the private guys will say listed is, is too volatile and too equity like. Um, we don't think it should be one or the other. We think the best form of implementation of the world of real estate is a mix of the two. Uh, they've become increasingly more and more complementary with each other. Um, uh, in terms of how they, how they, uh, in terms of underlying asset exposures, and one of the real big changes we've seen for, that's been particularly pronounced here in the U.S. is the magnitude of non-core property types. So all the stuff that sits outside of office, industrial, multifamily, and retail, things like towers, digital stores, life science office, manufactured housing, a lot of that stuff that's on the right side of disruption that I described before. Um, the percentage of non-core in the listed U.S. REIT market was 10%. 10 years ago, and today that percentage is 46%. The percentage of non-corporate property types in the Odyssey Index that represents core private real estate is 0%, right? Um, and so they've become increasingly more complementary, uh, and so we love that as we look to put the pieces to, of the puzzle together to create complementary exposures as opposed to overlapping. And also because listed trades differently versus private, you know, listed is, is part of the, forward-looking discount mechanism of the stock market. It's priced real time, and therefore it, it things price in more quickly, right? Um, and that allows us to arbitrage mispricings that happen between listed and private. And you saw it in Q1 with listed down 27% and private up 1%, which is quite a head scratcher. Um, but if you have a fund that's investing in both, that creates a really interesting uh, opportunity to to arbitrage that temporary disconnect, which which we can do in this fund. Um, so I apologize. I, I talked quite extensively there, but I'll uh, I'll stop there. John, pass it back to you. Thank you very much, Colin. Uh, and now we're going to turn it over uh, to Barry for a discussion on the convertible side. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, Barry Nelson, uh, Advent Capital. Uh, we manage convertible securities. Uh, Advent. Uh, 
um, convertible and income fund ticker AVK. I've been around convertibles since 1973, and uh, I was one of the creators of AVK in 2003. It took me 30 years to figure out there was a need for such a uh, such a closed-end fund. Uh, AVK gives you exposure to convertibles. We're about 70% in convertibles right now. Uh, Convertibles are having a, a banner year. Convertibles are ahead of the S&P 500. We've had record uh, issuance and uh, AVK, uh, we've lagged somewhat because uh, we haven't ridden convertibles to the uh, stratosphere in the cases of uh, our hottest uh, uh, company in convertible land has been Tesla and the convertible bonds rose to 600 or 700% of par. We're long gone. We watched the downside and that's reflected in our recent performance strength in weak markets. Um, uh, we've done much better than peers uh, in the last few weeks and holding up on the downside. And that's a whole key to convertibles. Convertibles historically capture much more of the upside then they suffer on the downside. And here we are with a pandemic, uh, with divisiveness in the US, social unrest. Uh, oh my God, overseas, um, that country that Svilana is sitting in, Brexit, it never ends. Uh, they never end with Brexit, they never end the discussion. God knows what's coming. And with convertibles, uh, there's inherent downside protection with uh, participation on the upside. The convertible market traditionally is a growth market. And uh, as Colin alluded to, uh, growth has really been the place to be uh, this year, uh, year to date. And it's shown in convertible uh, sub-indices. And technology um, is uh, going to be one of our biggest uh, uh, participations in the market and with so many new issues this year we have many more investment opportunities in uh, uh, convertible land it's a uh, it's a great time to be managing convertible securities and yet as a um, as the Calamos man alluded to in a prior session uh, convertible closed-end funds have been hammered more than others uh, recently that uh, the discounts have expanded. Uh, AVK is trading at something like a 16% discount from NAV. That's way over our historical uh, discount. And uh, we make monthly distributions and our dis distribution yield with the uh, stock at a 16% discount uh, has gone over uh, uh, 10%. We know that um, uh, retirees uh, uh, love these funds, and uh, and we're uh, we're serving them uh, with convertibles, uh, a niche asset class, uh, a class that individuals uh, cannot really participate in on their own. Uh, we're institutional investors. We're convertible specialists. We're in the market um, every day. And uh, this is an especially timely uh, uh, strategy to be in a convertible strategy and at a discount in a closed-end fund uh, at, this, uh, at this time. We also have, have uh, high yield in the fund 
uh, something like 30% right now. And the purpose of that is uh, to boost the yield. Obviously, yields on all asset classes uh, have come down, but we think that uh, high yield is uh, uh, still attractive. And uh, uh, with leverage in the fund, uh, this is a way to create uh, uh, additional net interest income and uh, help keep up uh, the distributions. Uh, uh, this is an unusual opportunity at the present time. I can speak for another half hour, but... Uh... Barry, um, I think one thing people are becoming increasingly concerned about is credit risk, both in high yields and in convertibles. Uh, at this point in our economy, when there's still plenty of uncertainty, can you kind of characterize your feelings there? Well, on the one hand, we are optimistic that there are all sorts of signs that the economy is coming back, and uh, that should be good for credits. And on the convertible side, uh, Companies that issue convertibles can often uh, refinance. I mean, we've seen uh, spectacular examples of that uh, this year. Uh, Carnival Cruise, uh, their revenues must have gone to zero, and uh, they floated a large convertible bond in April on exceptionally attractive terms, five and three quarter percent coupon, only a three-year maturity, and only a 25% conversion premium. In other words, $1,000 bond gets us $800 uh, worth of stock. That stock's now worth $1,700. What did Carnival do? They floated a convertible. They also did a high yield bond and an equity offering. They restored their liquidity. They're going to survive until the economic recovery. They're not the only ones that did this. Uh, we've seen consumer-oriented companies issue convertibles at very attractive terms. And um, we're credit analysts. We can separate those that are going to survive from those that may be in danger despite refinancing. That said, convertibles historically have had low default rates. Uh, and I think part of it is the ease of refinancing, of tapping the volatility of the equity market by issuing a new convertible. Great, thank you, Barry. Uh, we do ha have some uh questions from, from viewers and participants. Uh, specific one for you, Colin. Can you give us the main reason why you chose an interval format rather than a traditional uh, closed-end fund uh, for your listing of, of the product you described? Uh, and I also have a question for both you and Svitlana, uh, unless we run out of time, because it's kind of a big question. Um, assuming uh, that you both believe most of the bad news has been priced in on REITs and real estate, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, if we were to suddenly get very good news, such as work, can you quantify uh, how much of a quick upsurge in total return we could potentially have uh, on REITs and real estate? But I'll let you address the first part, uh, Colin. Yeah, sure. So. Um the answer is pretty straightforward. So why interval fund over, over a traditional closed end? Um, you know, it, it was uh, largely predicated our view in, in this instance, in, in the world of, of real estate specifically, um, that it made sense to do an interval fund and it was possible to do an interval fund over a closed end fund. Um, and uh, as part of that, since it's kind of a closed end fund-ish type of structure, where it's closed end but has a little liquidity on the side, you actually strip out that discount to nav issue. 
which I know a lot of, we think a lot of investors, um, you know, care about. Um, so we, we kind of felt like it was the best of both worlds and, and well suited for real estate specifically. And I'm sorry, the second question, I, you, you broke up and, and I'm happy to help answer that or, or someone else can answer it too. Well, this is a very big picture question. Sorry for breaking up. Uh, if we were to have exceptionally good news in terms of a vaccine and people returning to work in short order, just how much of a rebound do you all think would, would potentially happen for REITs and real estate you know, over the next three to six months or even sooner? And that's for both you and Svetlana. Yes, Svetlana, do you want to take a first out? I felt like I'd, I overtook yeah. my overtook my share of time. That's so all right. I'll defer to you. That's all right. I will. Be, I'll try to be brief. Uh, so, as uh, as actually Colin mentioned, uh, real estate investment is a reflection of our economy. So, if our economy returns to normal or whatever the new normal may look like, some of the things will be different. Uh, I think trend of uh, going to online education, trend, uh, e-commerce, uh, all of that is here to stay. So I think what we may see is um, industries that benefited from this change to digitalization, uh, to e-commerce, they will continue to have a very strong uh, backdrop from the economic perspective. But other sectors, hotels, uh, if the uh, travel resumes, offices, if the confidence of uh, office uh, workers uh, improves, all of those uh, elements will help to um, increase confidence of investors uh, in terms of the dividend, ability, uh, dividend uh, capability of the REITs. Uh, so we do think that um, as the economy returns uh, to what it was before, uh, at least to some extent, it will benefit the real estate. But the trends that we were enjoying um, in some of the sectors recently uh, will continue to be uh, strong even in that environment. Do you think something like a 20, 25 percent total I'm return always, rebound is? I'm always fi find it difficult to uh, to put specific numbers and uh, promise specific uh, return expectations. But if you look, at, uh, for example, at discounts uh, that are closed, uh, closed end funds in real estate space trade today versus February, so in, in general, uh, on average, you will see um, decline of uh, between 10 and 7%. So if we say that the market will come back to normal and investors' uh, um, psychology will be more positive, that discount should disappear. So at least uh, from the discount perspective, you will see uh, some performance on the um, total return basis. And in addition, um, as the economy improves, as the REITs performance improves, uh, you will have additional capital growth. So uh, the market should rebound uh, as soon as we uh, go back to more normalized environment. Thank you, Svetlana. I think we have just about a minute and a half left. Yeah, I, just from my perspective, I would I would absolutely agree with that. I, again, you look at a 3.8, talking U.S. Uh, listed equities here, uh, you're looking at a 3.7% yield. You have consensus growth estimates on top of that of mid-single digit. Um, 
with the opportunity for multiple expansion given they're so cheap on on every metric um so you know getting to a, a double digit return in a post-vaccinated world we think is very possible um but again i, I hate talking about the asset class because i just want to again underscore uh, the point here of just the need to go active and the need to cast a wide net has never been more important. Um, so it's it's increasingly more and more difficult to talk about real estate in such broad brush terms. Um, but there's no doubt that there's there's real opportunity in real estate and it's part of that real upside. Great. Uh, thank you very much. Um, Barry, I think we might literally have 20 or 30 seconds left. So I would ask you, outside of technology, is there any one sector that you really think looks best uh, convert convertible investors here? Uh, healthcare is a big element of convertibles and it's a chronic uh, growth area and with uh, the pandemic. And uh, this seems to be a big back a good background uh, for healthcare. Indeed, uh, our healthcare analyst is a medical doctor. It's, uh, it's one of our specialties. and uh, we're very optimistic about it right now. We have lots of choices uh, in the convertible market. Great. Thank you, Barry. And, and thank you to all of you. Uh, I believe we'll be moving on to the next panel now. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.